0: <laughs> Good morning, Twitter. I'm Isaac Fitzgerald, he's Saeed Jones, and you are watching AM to DM. It's Thursday, friends. It is Thursday. It's Thursday. We, we made it. You're getting there. It's been one there. of those
1: wings where I was just like, is it Thursday? Is it yet? What is happening? Anyway, I need to talk about this dog, <laughs> Rita. I know y'all been seeing the pictures of Rita out here (laughs) in the cut, living. Uh, Seth Mersing, Rita's owner, Rita's parent, tweeted, here's a short clip of my dog at the hospital after she found an edible on our walk at the park. Look at Rita going, Just keep
0: it going, keep it up, keep it up. Oh my (laughs) lord! (laughs)
1: Yes. Ooh, it's, ooh. The, it's the paw up. It's Rita, it's pa- just like what? And just
0: and is just kind of the look, just happening. What is going on now? A few things I want to I want to bring up about this. All right, let's One, get some clarity. Rita Mercing. Uh, I love when BuzzFeed News uh, spoke with Seth, the teenage owner of Rita, uh, about this story. Uh, we use. Rita's full name here: Rita Mercing. First name, last name.
1: Three-year-old doggo, comma Rita Mercing, comma Rita started acting Mercin. a little strange.
0: Yeah, and so basically, <laughs> Seth took Rita for a walk in the park. Says he remembers noticing that she started to eat something off the ground, but they didn't think too much of it. And then later in the day, about half an hour later, Rita started showing some real wild signs. Seth was just watching. All of a sudden, it got a little intense, and you know, Seth went to his mom. Right. Got a. Dr- they drove and to the vet. That's scary. Bed. That's scary. It's super scary. Yeah. And this, and I, this is very important. They went to the vet, the vet tested Rita for THC. Uh, Rita tested positive, then he remembered that she'd eaten something off the ground. Um, Rita is absolutely fine, and that is when Seth decided to tweet out the video that we all know and love.
1: And that's real. You know, it's like you're out with your girls, and you know, you're like, woo <laughs> Lord, are you okay? And you find out your girl's okay, and you're like, all right, girl! <laughs> <laughs> We're posting know, these pictures to the gram. Rita was nah. going through it, friends. Yeah, going. And he was like, I just don't know. And I love, again, like Rita Mersing, <laughs> of, you know, I don't know where she's from, but like a, a suburban wife, just like, oh, darling, this I just I don't... I don't know. The
0: lights. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to put on my conspiracy that hey here though. Okay. Seth, out for a walk. <gasps> happen to oh, eat something do off the I ground. I you, Seth. I'm going to call out the teen. Okay. I'm just saying, all of a sudden coming for the mom. But let's
1: be, you know, hypothetically, uh, mm. later this morning, um, Manhattan District Attorney Cy Vance is going to be here for a conversation with David Mack.
0: I'm sorry, say that again?
1: Yeah, Manhattan Di- District Attorney Cy Vance will be here. He's in the studio, uh, probably watching us in the green room right now. Hi, Cy. <laughs> um, as an African American who lives in the city of New York, I ain't trying to go to jail. So, hypothetically, Hypothetically! You know, I can see, you know, you eat something you don't Mm -hmm. know, and then like, 30 minutes later, hypothetically, it kicks in, and you are having a very bizarre hypothetical experience.
0: Yeah. Have you hypothetically had a search? Hypothetically, I would say that um, I actually have hypothetically eaten an edible, hypothetically, uh. without realizing that it was hypothetically inedible. Uh, and that is an experience. It's a real scary experience. Rita, I truly believe. Yeah, and then imagine being a chihuahua. Was going through it. I do, like, I just love the idea of Rita then talking to her dog friends about it later. <laughs> hypothetically, <laughs> have you ever hypothetically an edible? Hypothetically,
1: uh, I I could see how you would say yes. Mm, Uh, Hypothetically, mm. I haven't done it hypothetically by accident. Okay, okay. Hypothetically, last Friday I hypothetically had uh, an edible that hypothetically was stronger than I hypothetically anticipated. Ooh, hypothetically. And I hypothetically went on a journey.
0: A hypothetical journey, all right. Well, listen, Rita also went on just a journey. Just <laughs> Journey, uh, but everything worked out for Rita. Here's Seth's follow-up. She's at home now, by the way, resting up. Look at that face, I look at that her. doggo. And I'm She's serious. So cute. And, and we're gonna tweet out something yeah. right now because again, yeah. THC, your pets, not cool. Don't just be giving it to him to be funny. The like, vet not... very clearly in the story states that this is a dangerous situation. So we're just glad that Rita's okay. And again, I do like the idea of Rita just talking to her other dog friends, being like, "I have seen the light. <laughs> I have been on a journey, and I come back with stories of the glory land." <laughs> She's talking to her dog girlfriends, like,
1: hypothetically, do you know somebody who knows somebody?
0: <laughs> hypothetically, could I do that Anywhere. again? <laughs>
1: Hypothetically speaking, we want to hear from you, Twitter. Uh, Tell us your favorite, most memorable, hypothetical, edible story using the hashtag AM2IDidn'tDoIt. Feel free to use your burner account for these tweets.
0: I like it, the hypothetical edible. (laughs) Streets is watching. Not gonna open a store. Anyway. Uh, Listen, here's a tweet (laughs) from The Hollywood Reporter about its new cover story, Crazy Rich Asians. The cast and creators behind the adaptation talk turning down life-changing money at Netflix to ensure the first all-westernized Asian studio film in 25 years would be seen in theaters and reshape Hollywood.
1: 25 years. (sighs) Our next guest, Rebecca Sun, a senior reporter at THR, had this to say. This cover from Rebecca Ford and me was years in the making. I have lived and worked my whole life in the United States and never in my career have I covered a major story featuring
2: subjects
0: who share my particular American identity. Rebecca Sun joins us now. Rebecca, good morning.
2: Good morning, guys.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. We're both so excited to see the movie when it comes out. Uh, but to start, from an industry perspective, why does Crazy Rich Asians stand to be such a breakthrough?
2: Well, like we said in our article, there just simply hasn't been a movie featuring westernized Asians. So that's Asian Americans, Asian Brits, Asian Australians in a quarter century. And so Hollywood, you know, there's no major studio that has taken uh, this group of people and put them on screen in 25 years. That's why it's a breakthrough.
1: That's why it's a breakthrough. I mean, incredible. Joy Luck Club. Wow. Um, I wanted to ask about the story's opening. It opens with Kevin Kwan on the phone with, like, 20 other people making a huge decision. I felt myself sweating as I was reading it. Uh, Could you tell us about that moment?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Basically, what happened was very standard. You know, the studios all bid. Warner Brothers sort of had the best bid of the studios. Then Netflix came in uh, with all of their money and basically promised, you know, you know, we're not only going to make this movie, we'd like to make all three of your movies and we're going to, we want to give each of you stakeholders. So the author, Kevin Kwan, director, John Chu, the producers, Nina Jacobson, Brad Simpson, we'll give you guys at least seven figures each upfront payday. So that's like a check before the movie is made. Warner's comes back and goes, okay, that's Netflix's offer. Our offer still stands, but we'll give you 15 minutes and then we're going to walk. So that's essentially the decision that they made. Uh, Nina and Brad left it up to John and Kevin because they you know recognizing they were members of the Asian American community they were like it's only right for you guys to decide the kind of movie you want to make and they made it in 15 they made that choice in 15 minutes.
0: They made Ooh. that choice in 15 minutes mm-hmm. walking away from seven figure checks right there up front, get a private jet, fly to your private island, that is incredible. And also what an opener for a piece. So with that in mind, what kind of pressure is uh, Crazy Rich Asians under to perform at the box office?
2: Well, so now what happens is not only do they get, you know they get a theatrical release, but with that, they also get box office returns. because as you remember with Netflix, nobody ever knows exactly how many people are watching any given project on Netflix. Netflix has chosen not to disclose any numbers like that. With being in the theaters, we're going to know come, you know, August 19th, by the end of that five-day weekend, just how much money it made. And so if it's perceived to underperform, then unfortunately all of Asian American art will be judged by this movie because that's kind of still how the industry works, right? People aren't going to say, oh, that was a tough weekend or rom-coms are a really tough genre. They'll be like, oh, we knew it. We don't like Asians on screen. So So it's a make it or break it. On the other hand, if it does well, they have concrete proof that, look, this is the type of money that this kind of movie can make.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and you, you talk about like the, the influence of movies functioning as comps, comparisons for other works. We certainly saw that with Black Panther. As a guy in the book industry, certainly see that with books by writers of color, for example. Um, you also, of course, talked to the actors about their experience filming in Singapore and Kuala Lumpur. Can you talk about you know, some of the, the standout details you got from them about their experience?
2: Yeah, absolutely. What was really amazing for each of them is, again, as Asian-American actors in Hollywood, they are absolutely used to being the only one of their kind. They are the token on set in most cases. And here it was like summer camp where suddenly they don't have to be that asian because like as aquafina said you know every single person there shared the types of experiences they had coming up in the industry you know they're all i mean think about it you're you're in like singapore which is one of the most fabulous places in the world you know for a, a month or so Uh, Every night after the shoot they'd go out for street food. I mean Singapore is famed for their amazing food They went out for karaoke. I mean the cast like during that spring like they were on Instagram every night It was like are you guys even working (laughs) they were on they were just you know singing karaoke and eating street food and again the amazing experience of not having to explain or be sort of awkward about like, oh, don't worry, it's really, really, uh, it's not that exotic, this food is good, it's, it's chicken. Like, you don't have to like explain dumb, like sort of like yep. ignorant questions about what you're eating. It was incredibly cathartic for each of them.
0: And living life right. Um, but speaking of the cast, there was a lot of pressure just around the casting um, before before they were hired. Can you speak a little bit about how they went about casting this movie?
2: Yeah. You know, I think that uh, there were 76 speaking parts in Crazy Rich Asians and the vast majority, like all but like maybe less than a handful, uh, were for Asian, specifically Asian parts. And so, you know, I spoke to the casting director, Terry Taylor. She has literally never had in her entire career a project that called for this sort of thing. Um, You know, Constance Wu, thankfully, you know, that was somebody that they identified early on you know she's already been a star with fresh off the boat and it was just a matter of getting that scheduling right Michelle Yeoh was somebody that Kevin Kwan the author had in her head, had in his head you know when he wrote the part of Eleanor and thankfully they were able to get her on but with Henry Golding I mean Asian American men leading men unfortunately it's very hard you can um, it's very hard to see them on screen, they're a rare commodity for some reason. Not a lot of Asian American actors have given been given that kind of leading man experience. They looked everywhere. They looked at actors in China who could speak English well enough. They certainly obviously looked at Asian American actors, Asian British actors. Sometimes it was a matter of scheduling and sometimes a matter of that X factor. They found Henry. Uh, You know, he was a travel host Mm. on the BBC, you know, and in in like sort of in Singapore. And there was a woman in the production accounting office who was like, remember, you know, I saw this really hot Asian guy (laughs) in a travel video five years ago, you should look him up. And, you know, lo and behold, he turned out to be the one.
1: Okay, well, listen, I, I can say this for Henry Golden. I've seen the trailer and I see the vision. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I get it. I get it. One last question. I'm. We are so excited to see this movie when it opens August 15th. Um, there have been advanced screenings. Is there any sense of how people have received the film so far?
2: You know, I think one reason, I mean, it's we've never seen screenings this early and with such volume. And, and because, and, and I think Warner's did that because they have a lot of faith in the product. The reviews have pretty much people have seen it, it's universal praise. And, and you can tell that it's something where people were hoping it would be good, but it's actually meeting their expectations. Um, and, and providing a, a really moving experience for everybody who's been able to see it. So the reviews have been good. That This gamble looks to be paying off.
1: All right. That's well, exciting. I am so excited. And again, congratulations on this cover story. I hope thank this you. is just the beginning of other you know, pieces like this where you get to examine your own experience as well. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks, guys.
0: All right, that was awesome. Oof. We've got a great show for yes. you today. Like uh, Saeed mentioned earlier, we've got Syed <laughs> Vance. I'm not nervous oh, around nervous. Sure. Uh, not nervous around p- authority uh-huh. figures at all. He's he got a record. Uh, listen, listen. Hopefully, uh, we will not uh, he will not have us arrested. <laughs> Plus, our own Patrice Peck sits down with Rachel Zoe. It's going to be a great it. show.
1: Try a lot of fashion today. Yeah, a lot, of style. a lot of style today. And up next, of course, it's time for fire tweets. But before we get into all of that deliciousness, we wanted to share this trailer for Unspeakable Crime: The Killing of Jessica Chambers a new show from Oxygen based on the work of BuzzFeed News investigative reporter Katie J.M. Baker. She was on the show earlier this week. I know you love her work as well. Let's take a look at that trailer.
3: A gruesome murder mystery is gripping the nation tonight. A teenage girl burned alive. People would tell you their greatest fear is dying of fire.
4: They doused her in gasoline, set her car on fire. She was burnt. It was... 93% 93% of
5: her body.
3: Jessica Chambers. She was a beautiful blonde-haired cheerleader. She had her whole life in front of her. What could a 19-year-old girl do to somebody to make you do that? The fireman gave a statement that,
5: you know who did this, and it sounded like Eric and Eric. I heard plain as day
6: she said Eric did this.
7: 24 hours after
5: Jessica was killed, the media firestorm began. She's on the cover of People magazine. White people just saying the black people did it or black people saying that a white people
7: did it. And it started being a race war.
5: Quentin Tellis, I'd never heard of him.
3: He was asking her for sex. She was rejecting him.
4: Jessica said, Eric set me on fire. Eric is not on trial here today.
8: He should be. He's trying to set him up for something that he didn't do. I didn't kill
4: nobody. It ain't even on my part
8: to kill nobody. If he done it, he deserves what he gets. But if he didn't, he doesn't. We want justice for Jessica, but for whoever did it.
5: I know my son can do this. they just looking for someone to put this right on. If he killed my daughter, I hope he burns in hell for all eternity.
2: We knew the real Jessica Chaylor. She was a cheerleader, true enough. But she wasn't no saint,
8: man. Oh, my God. I've
9: never, ever heard no. that happen. I have never in my life seen anything like this.
0: Unspeakable Crime. The Killing of Jessica Chambers. Limited Series Event, Saturday, September 15th at 7. Welcome back. I'll say this. Jason, I see you. uh, You're you're tweeting. You're both getting hypothetically arrested. Shaking my damn head. That's because we're talking about hypothetical edibles this morning. I will also say I respect uh, our viewership. They are no snitches. They were like, we're I'm like, right. hey, share your yeah, stories. You guys share. are like, yeah. you ain't getting me. <laughs> Cy Vance in the yeah. studio.
1: I hypothetically could see a scenario in which perhaps people who were not imbibing edibles hypothetically before the 2016 election, <laughs> hypothetically are now.
0: Hypothetically. That's all I got. Hypothetically. Let's get to these. Let's get to these. Fire let's, fire get to these let's light Very up. real. Fi- <laughs> Sorry. Go. Just hit it. Just hit it. <laughs> Continent creator, you tweeted, he was a traitor, Joe. She said, see you later, Joe. So satisfying. She was a traitor, Joe. Oh, Say sweet. to you later, Joe. I was going to be like mm. a simple, pure Mm-mm. joke, and then you had... Nah, I got to get my Avril Lavigne on. Shout out Where's to Paul McCloud when we need him? <laughs> we are talking to Emma later, <laughs> so go Canadian. Henry Gamble, what
1: is happening? We didn't, we didn't imbibe this morning. Okay.
0: Henry, you tweeted,
1: Probably the worst thing I did as a kid was buy groceries with a fake ID. <laughs> 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 oh, man. Mm. So much happens when I first read that this morning. I was like, I don't even, and then I was like, oh, right. Right. The president
0: doesn't know how to buy groceries. Right. And that was only like a day and a half so ago. So he's certainly great at That's what I love. When, it, when a tweet just perfectly nails the zeitgeist, that was just A-plus stuff. Bravo, Henry. <laughs> Hayes Davenport, you tweeted, used to hate the garlic press because it was hard to clean. But today I realized it's really easy if I just clean it right after I use it. I was the problem. <laughs> And this is one of those moments where I feel like we all have that. Where all of a sudden you realize, wait a second, <laughs> this is a lot easier. I'm the one holding me back. Yeah. Oh, I was the problem in the equation. Been there. Do you even have a garlic press? I don't. There I is. have to be honest. I was like, I don't even
1: know what you do. I also want to say, Hayes <laughs> Davenport. What an elegant name. Mm, very elegant. Yeah. Let us know what a garlic press does. <laughs> this tweet comes from Glossy. The reason men and babies get along so well is because they're the same age.
0: <laughs> I mean, well, just, just facts. Just, just 100% facts. Yeah. Except Amen. not be trash. Amen, Glossy. All right, here we go. <laughs> Verified husband, you tweeted, Standing in front of 3D printer, waiting for my bullets to print out as a killer walks toward me. Come on, come on, <laughs> come on! <laughs>
1: So good. Oh, God. Oh, goodness. I also love, and I can't think of his name off the top of my head. The actor from The Wire yesterday tweeting Mm. about, like, we're not supposed to be using plastic straws, but now y'all got plastic guns out here. And he just. I love
6: it.
1: Yeah, it was
0: really good. (laughs) I can see, you know, the printer never goes as fast as you want it to, and it always jams. I can see this, this is gonna be a movie in like 2021. This is gonna be a movie scene, (laughs)
1: 2019. Uh, Okay, (laughs) tweet of the day comes from Emily Grace Buck. We love this tweet so much, so pure. All right, let's go. Little girl, ooh, look, that bird is so pretty. Her mom, no honey, that's a pigeon. Pigeons are dirty. Little girl. Then I want to be dirty instead of pretty, because I like the way that bird shines, mom. Uh, little girl. You're a perfect
0: pigeon. My mom is
10: wrong. My
0: mom is wrong. wrong. (laughs) Yeah, man, it reminds me of that classic tweet. Pigeons just need a better PR team. They
1: do, and and little girl's going to head it.
0: They're just city doves, all right? Pigeons are great. Give pigeons a chance. I love pigeons. It's
1: not that I think that pigeons are inherently dirty. It's just that, like, doves are not inherently clean.
0: Okay, okay. I do, I <laughs> like the idea, just, just a young girl just being like, Mom, Mom you're wrong. wrong. Listen, up next, us two pigeon stands are talking about EC <laughs> news with Emma Loop, and something tells me it will be more dirty than pretty. Squat, squat. Welcome back, we're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News Capitol Hill correspondent, Emma Loop. Good morning, Emma.
9: Good morning.
1: All right, Emma, let's talk about that damn jacket. <laughs> Here's a tweet from CNN's Cara Scannell. Behold! The $15,000 ostrich coat Manafort bought with an international wire transfer. Didn't even know you could pay with things using wire transfers. Mm. Uh, according to a men's clothier who tested
0: today, government exhibit. All right, and here's a tweet from our own Katherine Miller. I love how all the Justice Department photos of Paul Manafort's clothes look like they're from a listing for an apartment sublet on Craigslist. So Emma, let's start with this. Would you spend $15,000 on that jacket?
9: I would maybe spend $15 on that jacket if I found it on the clearance rack at TJ Maxx. You better
1: read. Wow, that was Uh cold. That was cold. That is an expensive jacket to look that ashy.
9: And here's the thing. That
0: jacket was $15,000, but that's only part of what I believe was a $500,000 clothing budget, which is wild. The mind reels. Emma, what would you get if you had that kind of money for clothes?
9: I don't even know what I would do with that much money for clothes. I mean, I do love the clearance rack, so I'd probably still go to TJ Maxx and just buy more stuff. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Emma's like, best darling. was like, I'm going to own TJ Maxx. That's what I'm going to do. Well, listen, Twitter, we want to hear from you. If you had $500,000 to spend on your clothing budget, what's the first thing you would buy? Let us know using the hashtag AmToShoes. AM to shoot? Yeah, I would get fried boots, baby fried boots, Uh, as far as the eyes could see. I would get custom, uh, like, Dior
1: suits all tailored. Ooh, all Uh, right. Suits for every occasion. Anyway, here's a clip from ABC News of Senator Richard Burr of North Carolina referencing a particular meme.
3: Some feel that we as society um, are sitting in a burning room, calmly drinking a cup of coffee, telling ourselves this is fine. That's not fine. And that's not the case. We should no longer be uh, talking about if the Russians attempted to interfere with American society. They've been doing it since the days of the Soviet Union, and they're still doing it today.
0: All right, and here's a tweet from you, Emma. Important update. Senator Burr says the memeing today was his staff's idea. Quote, I was cool with it. I think to educate America, we need visuals, and we need visuals for every generation. And that one's a generational visual. A lot of rhyming on the show today. It's quite a quote. Also quite a visual considering that he was speaking I don't, Uh, not. auditory. Listen, Emma, what was the room like when he said that? Did anyone get it?
9: So the room was pretty serious, and this was the end of the hearing, so people were kind of, you know, getting tired and starting to tune out a little bit. And so most people, I don't think, got the reference at first. I, however, being a BuzzFeed employee, got the reference right away and could not really control my laughter in this quiet hearing room. So I was one of the few people, I think, who was laughing in the room, and then other people caught on eventually. Wait,
0: did other people react to your laughter?
9: Not really. I mean, I, I wasn't like uh, over the top, you but like I was me. I was giggling pretty hard at my seat.
0: Okay,
1: you weren't like side <laughs> scream laughing in the back. I mean, I, I do kind of no. wonder. It's interesting. You know, we have a very established uh, senator, uh, Richard Burr. You know, referencing a meme. I would imagine his aides had a goal with kind of you know pulling in the meme. Is there like who was the intended? audience? I I highly doubt like Mitch McConnell was like, oh yeah, my girl, I got it. You know, like what was the goal there?
9: (laughs) Yeah, it was all Mitch's idea. No, (laughs) it was definitely his staff. Uh, it was his staff. You know, he's got a younger staff, uh, and so they—they uh, were—they were the ones who apparently suggested it. He was cool with it. He said uh, that was an exclusive interview, by the way. Um, and you know, he—he he, like he said, he thought it was a good kind of reference to get people's attention, so that they would take this threat seriously. All
8: right, listen, I'm going to say
0: this. I'm on Senator Burr's side with this. You know, I think Congress I can be a little it. stuffy. I like that he—he—he he, he shot his shot and I mean, that he went for it. Done. It does apply. It does apply. (laughs) Because let's get into the actual substantive conversation. Um, What was the hearing about?
9: So the hearing was about foreign influence on social media platforms, which has been a major part of the Senate Intelligence Committee's Russia investigation. You know, how the Russians use those platforms and use technology to manipulate American voters, to spread misinformation about US politics, and to divide and sow chaos in American society by posting inflammatory things about controversial issues. And senators and experts both say that this is something that's still going on today And so they wanted to bring attention to this and warn the public about what's going on.
1: And again, uh, Richard Burr is, uh, I believe, a Republican. So it seems significant that a Republican uh, senator uh, was speaking in very strong terms, you know, about the seriousness of this threat, given um, President Trump's kind of waffling comments. Um, Was he kind of, um, did he have other peers supporting him in that point? Was there a strong push and pressure on the uh, White House out of this hearing?
9: So it's definitely notable to hear this from Burr. Burr is the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee. He's not just any other member. And so he is the top Republican on this committee leading this investigation. And so what he says carries a lot of weight about this. And it it definitely did seem like it was a bit of a rebuke of this president who really just refuses to take the threat of Russian interference seriously. And this is something that Burr is supported in uh, by other Republican members of the committee as well as Democrats.
1: And one last question about this. where does it go from here like it was the point just to have this public conversation and say what they have to say or is there a next step?
9: So, there is actually going to be another hearing in early September with executives from Facebook, Google and Twitter. That'll be another public hearing and we're going to hear from them about you know, what they're doing to make sure that this threat does not persist and make sure that you know foreign actors aren't using the platforms for malicious intent. And so, that hearing is coming up and then there will be sort of a mini-report that the committee puts out on social media, they've done sort of uh, small individual reports on different subjects and then at the very end of their investigation there will be a full broader report that encompasses all these issues as well as other issues like potential collusion uh, in this final report.
0: All right the conversation ongoing and especially on everyone's mind as we ramp up for the midterms. Well Emma thank you so much for joining us this morning.
9: Thanks for having me.
1: Here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. Eight months after Al Franken left the Senate in the wake of sexual harassment allegations, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand has not stopped hearing about how she is to blame for his resignation. Joining us now to talk about this story is BuzzFeed News reporter Molly Hensley-Clancy. Good morning, Molly.
0: Hey guys. Good morning, Molly. Uh, So why is Kirsten Gillibrand still taking heat for Al Franken's resignation?
11: Uh, Great question it's not entirely clear um so she was like the she was the first one out of a wave of senators to call for his resignation um so that's you know she seems to have started this sort of um wave also she has political ambitions of her own so some people have said that they feel it's uh, was sort of self-serving of her. She's thinking about running for president. But, you know, honestly, uh, it's not unusual. She's a woman and it's not unusual for women to kind of end up getting blamed for for men's actions. And I think that's how a lot of her allies see it. Um, you know, there were a lot of credible allegations against Franken. There were eight of them. Um, and, you know, she spent her entire career saying that she believes victims of sexual assault. So a lot of people on her side are saying she had no choice but, but to come out and say that she believed these women
1: she believe these women and here we are um her, who are the people who are holding the grudge uh publicly because we do have to like <laughs> set aside general misogyny
11: yeah so i mean there's there's a few there's some big democratic donors and they're the people that have gotten you know the most attention george soros um who's obviously a billionaire democratic donor came out and said that that he thought gillibrand was the only democrat that he didn't want to get the nomination in 2020 because of what happened to um, what she, you know, had said about Al Franken. And then also just a lot of people on the internet. You know, a lot of people have observed, journalists have, have observed that every time you tweet about Gillibrand, you hear about Franken. And every time you hear about Franken, you tweet about Franken, you hear about Gillibrand. It's just this, people still have very strong feelings about it on the internet. All um right. But
0: yeah. No, <laughs> no, no, keep going, keep going Molly.
11: Oh, I was just going to say that, you know, when you look at the, the Democrats, the party people who are standing up, it does tend to be sort of older, more established politicians. Um, you know, she's not there. You're not hearing a lot of this from sort of the younger guard of Democrats. They're all kind of saying, yeah, this was this was the right call.
0: Yeah. And let's talk about that a little bit, because we're talking about kind of how Gillibrand is getting heat for this. Mm-hmm. But how could the situation be used to her advantage?
11: Right. Well, you know, you hear a lot of people saying, "Oh, Gillibrand's upsetting Democratic donors, pissing off donors." Like that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think if Trump, you know, showed us anything, it's that voters maybe actually think it's a good thing to to make donors mad to stand up against your party. So I think it kind of remains to be seen, but there really is a scenario in which, like, this makes her look like she took on her party and she stood up for this kind of younger generation of, of Democrats who, you know, have been influenced by the Me Too era. Um, so I, I, it's, all, it's all up in the air right now, but it could be good for her politically, I think.
1: And that's interesting. Um, with November approaching, what does Kirsten Gillibrand's uh, political future look like at this point?
11: Um, I don't think we really know. I mean, I think it's been reported that this is something she's considering that she may be running for president. A lot of Democrats are considering running for president. So it's going to kind of have we have to wait till after the midterm elections, which is when people will start, you know, saying publicly that they're going to run.
1: Can't wait.
9: No, it's gonna <laughs> be fun. riveted.
1: Uh, here's a tweet from NBC News: Barack and Michelle Obama release first wave of nearly 100 midterm endorsements. Uh, Molly, what do we make of this list?
11: It's really interesting. So you have some, you know, key states that he that he endorsed people in. Um, what I think is really notable is you see some names that you recognize. You see like Stacey Abrams, um, who's running for governor in Georgia. Rich Cordry, but like a lot of the people on the list are names that you don't recognize. And there are people that are running for small offices, um, like state offices, state house offices all across the country. And I think that really shows that Democrats, especially Obama, are really focused on winning back state legislatures, not just the House. Democrats don't control a lot of state legislatures right now. They don't have a lot of governorships. They don't have state houses. And they want to change that. And Obama is like very focused on, on that goal. So we endorse a lot of people that, that we've never heard of.
0: Focus on kind of rebuilding from the ground up. Well, Molly, thank you so much for joining us this morning.
11: Yeah, thanks. Bye, guys.
1: So Jake Tapper can now rest in peace (laughs) knowing that Barack and Michelle don't just go to Jay-Z and Beyonce concerts.
0: Oh, my God. It's almost like they could do uh, more things than one thing at a time. Everything's going to be okay. layers. So weird. Listen, up next, David sits down with Manhattan District Attorney, Simon Vance. We are going to plead the fifth. Stay tuned. You it.
6: Welcome back, I'm joined now by Manhattan District Attorney Cy Vance who just yesterday put into force a new policy about marijuana prosecutions here in New York City. Mr Vance, welcome to AM2DM. To Thank you. Uh, this is a, a big new policy. Yesterday you directed Manhattan prosecutors to no longer go after low-level possession or smoking offences. Uh, you made two arguments for this. You said it didn't have any public safety uh, effects and it also, the prosecutions that are currently going on disproportionately affect people of colour. Now, these have both been around for a long time, these arguments, and I'm wondering what, sir, has taken
3: you so long? Well, I would first of all acknowledge that I have been part of the problem. Yes. In other words, I've been the district attorney and uh, we have been uh, processing these cases this way for quite some time. Uh, so, but I do think in a job, uh, you evolve. And I came into the job with some very specific things I was going to do. Uh, and you try to accomplish them, but that you may find in the middle of it that you're looking at where you are in this moment in time and what people are observing and what you've concluded is or is not fair, and you decide to do something. What prompted this was actually something that happened many years ago. I brought the Vera Institute of Justice, which is a criminal justice think tank, mm-hmm. into the office, one of the, first, one of the first acts we did, in order to do a racial bias review of our charging decisions, our bail recommendations, our plea bargaining and the like, and Vera came out with a long report which is public, uh, but the most important piece of that report was actually not what I had expected. It was it was to identify that our office actually, when they sat down with the police officer and listened to his or her story of an arrest, they wrote up 96% of those cases. Mm-hmm. Which, that and then and a large percentage of our cases are low level offenses like marijuana possession or theft of services. And I had not appreciated uh, how much of our work was responding to these low-level arrests. And uh, I also uh, had come into the office really, after being gone for 35 years, noticing that the individuals we were prosecuting in our office were mostly uh, latino and african american so the bottom line is through this period of time uh, after we got the vera report and after we started to figure out how we were going to reduce the number of low level offenses we were right. prosecuting in order to have a more fair justice system this is in this is part of of that process right. and but i am absolutely uh, uh it's, it's been an evolving situation sure. for me.
6: You talk about um, the, the people of color that were depro- disproportionately affected over the years, and yet yeah, under this new policy, you're still going to have, uh, you're going to go after people who are selling marijuana and then uh, also violent offenders as well. Yep. Can you promise now, sir, that people of color won't be disproportionately represented among those people?
3: I can't promise that. Uh, we really, with violent offenders, uh, you have to follow where the evidence leads you now it is it is certainly not our policy to avoid looking for violent offenders, just because they come from some demographic, I mean, we are not—we're we, not avoiding looking uh, at Caucasians who are committing violent crime. I think our office is a very strong on on uh, prosecuting violent crime. It's actually very strong on white-collar crime. So we prosecute probably uh, a greater percentage of white-collar businessmen and women than any other office you know in the city. Well, so yeah, so uh, they're, they're mostly headquartered in Manhattan, correct? Yeah. Well, some are, some aren't. Yeah. Uh, you know, some are international banks that are headquartered in- headquartered in- Paris right. or the foreign jurisdictions, but I, I, we should not be targeting uh, our violent crime, crime uh, investigations without with, di- disregarding uh, the issue of race. Right. Uh, but I, but but I'm pretty involved in those cases, and uh, I feel that th- those are uh, we are following the evidence, and we are building the cases which need to be built. Sure. Uh, and I will certainly not. Uh, I certainly do not want to. focus only on men and women of color. That's not our intent and it's not a practice.
6: talk about following the evidence. Other cities that have stopped prosecuting low-level marijuana offenses have still found that there are some cops out there who will use marijuana as a pretext to stop someone in right. the street. How are you going to handle cases where people are brought to you with other offenses but uh, marijuana was the reason they were stopped? Doesn't that just send a message to cops that they can use pot to shake down people
3: on well, the street? I, I, look, our policy is very simple. Uh, we won't prosecute a marijuana case unless one of two things. You are uh, you are actually selling uh, but we can't prove the sale for example the buyer runs off but we find ten bags of marijuana mm-hmm. uh, in in your pants pocket you, you should not be able to sell marijuana where it's still illegal in the state and so if you're selling we will prosecute that possession case and secondly if uh, we are uh, if we can determine and the police can prove that you are actually uh, under active investigation for for a violent crime, uh, of some other kind sure. or by our office. And so if the, if the police officer fabricates uh, the circumstances around its stop and possession of marijuana, uh, there still will be a direct sit-down with the police officer to understand, well, why is it, you know, how does this individual fall within the guidelines of under active investigation for, a, a, you know, serious violent crime? And that's, right. you know, that's a subjective assessment, but it's one that is actually done face-to-face and has to be approved by a supervisor in our complaint room.
6: Uh, you want to you uh, seal these past convictions as well, but do you want to expunge them as well?
3: I think oh, Yes, I think we should both seal and expunge, right. um, and for the reasons that I, if they're not obvious to, to, your, to your viewers, mm-hmm. that uh, first of all, once we've determined that we should no longer be prosecuting marijuana, right. and this is a process that for us came after a result of a long study uh, from around the country, uh, if we have determined that this should no longer be prosecuted, we then in fairness have to go back and look at who was prosecuted. Yes, uh, and determine whether there are ways to uh, d- seal those prior convictions or expunge them, and we are working uh, with the uh, you know the court system and with public defenders to try to accomplish both those things. They are not as easy as you'd think. Uh, there aren't necessarily obvious laws that permit you to do this, but. Uh, where, we, where, where justice requires it, we've done it. I stood up last year in Manhattan and dismissed 240,000 uh, old summons cases where an individual had been given a summons, didn't show up in court, and, and a warrant was issued. And we determined there was a huge number of those that really just had to be cleared out. It was right. the right thing to do. So we've done it.
6: You've talked about how your, your views have shifted here. Can I ask then just, I mean, the obvious question is, have you ever smoked marijuana, sir?
3: I did. Yeah. Last time I smoked marijuana was in high school. In high school. Uh, and so I have had experience with it. I'm sure the marijuana today is is very different. And obviously, yeah. in, a, in in a if and when New York Uh, legalizes the sale and possession of marijuana. Uh, it will be a you know a much more organized and controlled way in which people can get marijuana. Uh,
6: the Attorney General Jeff Sessions has a very different opinion on all this to you, and he says marijuana is a gateway drug that's going to lead you to widespread addiction. Right. Do you think uh, we're going to have a different view on uh, it, the, the Attorney General would have a different view on marijuana if I'm he tried sure,
3: it? I'm sure the Attorney General does have a different view of marijuana, and I think he's been very but clear. If he right tried it. marijuana, would he think he would have a different view on it? Uh, I, you know, I. You seem are, to have come through okay there are there are many you know, uh, <laughs> there are many ways I could answer that question I, I uh, the marijuana we, we I don't think we have to be afraid of marijuana in the way that I think people some people are afraid of it uh, we have we are the largest consumer of any state of black market marijuana in the country uh, and we need to we need to Sure. control that what we need to do is to make sure that the mar- the marijuana is getting into the hands of individuals is uh, is is safe uh, we deal with a lot of fentanyl mm-hmm. uh, tainting of cocaine and heroin and that's going to be happening in marijuana
6: we've talked about um, the low-level offenders here right. people of color and uh, minority communities I want to've got a list here and I want to go through them because this is something we obviously can't ignore uh, right. last year for you uh, we're going to run through some of your uh, prosecutions here or f- rather the cases that you declined to prosecute now of course famously when you first took over you declined to prosecute Dominique Strauss-Kahn uh, you declined to prosecute Greg Kelly there's uh, Good Day New York anchor son of the NYPD Commissioner you declined to uh, prosecute the powerful personal injury attorney Sandra Rubenstein of course you declined to prosecute Harvey Weinstein uh, there was the news as well that you declined to bring charges against the Trump children related to the Soho case I guess my question is it, what does it take for a rich, powerful person in this city to face justice?
3: Well, you've identified six cases out of 600,000 in those you know, six or eight years. Uh, so uh, it is the, the, the public is not aware of the many cases involving uh, men of privilege uh, that are prosecuted in our office. In the last 12 months, our sex crimes unit has uh, prosecuted any number of individuals who are. Uh, who are men of privilege and power uh, abusing their privilege and power involving uh, sexual assault survivors so it is you are I stand by my decision in every one of those cases and would be happy to explain why.
6: Well, let's talk about Harvey Weinstein then for a second. Because we've got now, he's now facing three uh, charges against three separate women here in New York. Of course, uh, he's also being investigated in London. We've got more than 70 women have come forward around the world, including some of the world's biggest names and actresses. Do you look at that the news of the past year and think, how did I miss that?
3: There's no question that uh, just as my opinion evolved uh, on issues of low-level prosecutions, I think a prosecutor has to be open to evolving in all aspects of the work they do. I I frankly was not aware uh, of the extent to which workplace sexual violence existed, Uh, and uh, perhaps I should have been, but I think I and a lot of other prosecutors did not understand the full scope of it. I think this was really, actually, frankly, a revelation to many of us uh, in America, perhaps not uh, uh, women who were surviving these assaults, but, but I think it was not known to exist at the extent that it did. Certainly the Me Too movement has made that much more clear than ever.
6: But would you say that if I'm a powerful person and I can afford high priced attorneys, does that give your office more pause for concern if they're going to bring charges?
3: To be honest with you, it is a two-edged sword. Putting aside my office, I would say objectively that being a powerful person in any industry uh, can both make it, make some prosecutors more cautious about the decision and other prosecutors more aggressive mm-hmm. uh, because it would be prosecuting someone that was rich and famous. So there is, you know, the public perception that uh, that person is going to get, a, a you know, an easier shake is, I think, inaccurate. Do you I think, think most of these cases are, in fact, uh, decided on the evidence. And what you... This is somewhat right, but we really do uh, operate in a world of what's admissible of court in court, not what is being read in the newspapers. Of course.
6: Speaking of the newspapers, of course, they went very hard on you about the Dominic kahn stuff when that happened, and I wonder because you were you initially brought charges and then you removed the charges, uh, did that color the way that you approach these similar kind of cases? You didn't
3: want to. You know, I think the Dominic kahn case is is really very interesting, but but not for the reason that I think you're describing. Uh, To me, Dominic Strauss-Kahn actually represented, uh, I think, our office uh, at at its best, and not, as some felt, uh, not at its best. We had a very rich and powerful man Mm -hmm. who was accused by a very poor uh, woman from Guinea who had no power that she had been sexually assaulted. He was arrested, uh, and based on her word, he was indicted. It is our obligation even after indictment, to continue to investigate a case, and when we find, as we continue to investigate the case, exculpatory evidence, it is our obligation yeah. uh, to produce that evidence and provide it to the court and the defense, even if that means that the case therefore cannot be prosecuted. And that is what happened in that case. So, uh, the police determined they were going to pull him off. They was going to pull him off the plane. Uh, he, uh, he he was indicted, and at the end of the day, in the Dominique Strauss-Kahn case. Uh, Uh, I believe this, I have to go into court, and my assistants do, and convince a jury beyond a reasonable doubt, all 12 members beyond a reasonable doubt, that this individual committed this crime. Mm -hmm. At the end of the investigation, quite honestly, we could not say beyond a reasonable doubt that we knew what happened in that room. Uh, In that instance, uh, the complainant had misrepresented to us that she had been raped in two other occasions, which she then later acknowledged she had falsely. Uh, told us uh, that those had happened and that had obviously a huge impact on the confidence of our prosecutors as to whether they could go into court and say in this instance right. we are convinced so the public perception uh, some of the public thought uh, i guess it was Uh, thought critically others I think understood this is what a prosecutor does and wouldn't have been much worse uh, for us in that case to have not disclosed the exculpatory evidence and proceeded to a train wreck of a trial. It's fair
6: to say though I mean you you at least have a public perception problem on this right that there's you know
3: I, I, I and and you know I think I'm apparently I do and we simply try you know I'm I'm gonna have to do my job and make the calls I make uh really not being guided by what i think the public wants uh or what my partners in law enforcement wants it, if i went by what other people think i would not have passed this marijuana policy or the fair beating policy which the police department opposes me on so i really try uh to do TO THINK CAREFULLY ABOUT WHAT WE DO. I SURROUND MYSELF WITH CAREER PROFESSIONALS WHO ARE EXCELLENT PROSECUTORS, WHO ARE EXPERT IN THESE VARIOUS AREAS. I LISTEN TO THEIR GUIDANCE, AND I MAKE A CALL. AND SOME PEOPLE WILL DISAGREE WITH MY CALLS, AND SOME PEOPLE WILL AGREE WITH THEM. BUT IN THE ARC OF AN EIGHT-YEAR TIME AS DISTRICT ATTORNEY WITH 800,000 CASES, mm-hmm. uh, I THINK WHAT USUALLY HAPPENS IS PEOPLE TEND TO FOCUS ON A TINY SLiver OF THE WORK AND NOT RECOGNIZE THE GREAT WORK DONE BY LAWYERS IN MY OFFICE ON Innumerable cases, very difficult. I cannot tell you how many cases we prosecute where the survivors are prostitutes or victims of sex trafficking, uh, prosecuting the men that are either trafficking or uh, men who have uh, have committed acts of violence. Now, those are very difficult cases. Yep. We do those routinely, and those are not cases that the media tends to focus upon. I wish they would because I think they tell important stories about domestic violence and about sex trafficking that I think that even our media doesn't want to absorb the importance and the widespread nature of that impact. But we do those cases and we try them all the time. And so I would say, uh, you know, whatever, my, uh, whatever the perception is, the perception is, I'm not going to stop doing the job because I'm worried about uh, what you think of me what the New York Times thinks of me or what an advocacy group thinks about me. If I start doing that, then it's time to leave the job.
6: Okay. Thank you very much, sir. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, stay tuned for more AM to DM. Thank you, Cy Vance. Yeah, thanks a lot.
5: Back Thursday, we are going back to 2007 and the abomination that was the skinny brow. It looked good on none of us. I am joined by editor-in-chief of A Cut, Stella Bugbee, and BuzzFeed, as is beauty editor Essence Gantt. Thank you guys so much for coming on to talk about this very serious (laughs) problem that we're all having right now are you ready or are you emotionally prepared to talk about this absolutely i prepared this morning okay okay so if in case you don't know what we're talking about rihanna's eyebrows on the british vogue cover set twitter on fire stella you tweeted skinny brows will be back i give it two years stella no, please tell me this is not true. They just grew back in, (laughs) legit.
8: Right, no,
4: it's definitely true. It's definitely happening, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's happening. But it doesn't matter, because it's not going to apply to you. It's just going to apply to the very young people.
5: That's, you tweeted that, and I did appreciate that. You said, don't worry if you can't take the idea that skinny brows will come back. It's just because you're old and it won't <laughs> matter for you because these things only apply to young people. That's very true. Mm-hmm. So did you guys have skinny eyebrows back in the day?
8: I did. I did. Yeah, Yeah. I used to get it waxed.
5: See, I mine were always so incredibly full that I, feel like no matter how much I wax them they like would not look skinny and my mom would always tell me oh my god you have Brooke Shields eyebrows they're so (laughs) Mm -hmm. beautiful and I'd be like mom I have the worst eyebrows at school like they're terrible so I'm in my prime right now I can't go back
4: yeah. Well, like, I have the skinny brows from 1997, so oh, we're wow. going back, okay. like, throw back 20 years. Throw back yeah. 20 years. Or no. pencil thin. Yeah. yeah. No.
5: Or just shave them and draw them on.
4: Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> see, it's a thing. It happens uh, every 10 years. Oh, no.
5: OK, so we wanted to look back at some of the other trends from back in the day and see what you guys thought of the trends, if you're happy for them to come back or you dreading when they come back. Okay, first off, we have bootcut jeans and low-rise jeans. Now, bootcut jeans are definitely already back. Mm-hmm. I have not seen low-rise, so Essence, why don't you go first? What do you think? I'm kinda
8: here for it. I kinda like am. Boot cut? I, I, I do like bootcut, and I do like low- I don't really wear low-rise because I just like high-waist things to, like, you know, hide stuff. But um, I do appreciate, like, when I see someone rocking a low-rise. <laughs>
5: Yeah, I mean, I don't even think they made high-waist jeans for a minute, minute there, like low-rise mm-hmm. for very in. What do you think, Stella?
4: I have this debate going with my 13-year-old daughter that she's <laughs> going to be wearing thongs hanging out of her yes. uh, low-rise <laughs> jeans, and she's like, never, never, mom, never. And I'm sort of thinking, like, well, we have a $20 bet. By the time you're a junior in high yeah. school, you're going to be doing this. And she says, no, but I know. I know better
5: yeah I I thought that I always never minded the low-rise jeans and then I tried on a pair of jeans that were kind of low-rise not like just like normal I guess right and they were so uncomfortable I couldn't stand it that's a funny bet though (laughs) all right the next one this one made me laugh when they brought it up dress over jeans I definitely wore this oh my god that was a look so what do you think are you guys into it I am, I I
8: feel like I'm kind of here for everything, like I am, but you know how I've seen it done recently and I really appreciate it, it's like a longer dress with like some jeans, I saw, uh, I want to say it was Kalana Barfield and she had on a like long Chanel dress I think Mm -hmm. with with some denim and it was really really cute.
5: Hmm, okay.
4: What about you, Stella? I'm all for covering up all the time.
5: <laughs> <laughs> see, I really, I'm not into it because I, if I'm going to wear a dress, I want to be comfortable. I don't want to wear jeans, mm. un, like, at the same time. It's just not, I don't know, That's it's not you. my thing. I, I don't
4: know. But I always find, like, it's this part of jeans that are uncomfortable, so if you can unbutton them and wear a dress yeah. over yeah. it, are yeah. good. Good point. You're like, I just ate a really big burrito. Mm-hmm. Here I go. Good point. I have a dress on. So
5: All right. Fun. Our next is lined lips without, I assume, any lipstick in between. Oh, yeah. That, that was a look. That was a look. You know, that now, was a look. With thin eyebrows. With thin mm. yeah. eyebrows. Yeah. Okay. What do you guys think of this one? I'm not here for that one.
8: Really? I'm not here for, no, I'm not here for like the lined lips, like super defined lined lips. I'm not here for that one. Are you anything. here for
4: it? I like anything that like feels really different than where we're at. Mm. Yeah. That's interesting. I think that's really important.
5: Yeah, so, that's true. I'm here I for mean, that. I feel like I don't. I feel like I don't have strong feelings either way. I mean, she looks good, but I guess she'll all probably. It's always also look Naomi, good. though. Yeah, yeah she's gonna look at That's a good point. <laughs> okay, for our grand finale, I have one that's really gonna bring you guys back to circa 2004. It's a peasant skirt with an oversized belt. Oh my goodness. Those belts, like the WWE belt. (laughs) What do you guys think? I'm not here for
8: that belt. I'm here for oversized belts. I'm not here for that belt. So
5: what sort of belt are you into?
8: Like with the big kind of like buckle in the front, like your mom Mm -hmm. probably had, like I know my mom did actually have it at home. I'm just waiting to like pull it out. Like, I I think they're coming back. Yeah, I think those are coming back. I've seen Gucci, like with their belts recently have done Mm -hmm. it, so I'm here
5: for that. I remember wearing my school uniform and pulling like my polo shirt over my pleated skirt and then a huge belt over it. That was a thing. Yeah, yeah. It was a look. It was a look. (laughs) It was a look. What do you think Stella, are you into the belts? not into belts. No. <laughs> I don't think I own a belt. I don't think even not if they come belt. back, I'll ever.
4: I feel like they're just like one step too much in styling and then you look like you tried really, really hard.
5: That's how I feel
8: just about hats too. I,
4: look.
8: I love
5: hats. I know, I just I can't, can't pull them off them because, them because my, because my hair is are... so big, but I love hats. You're so stylish, I feel like you can pull anything <laughs> off. I can't pull off a hat. Thank you, <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. Okay. Well, Stella and Essence, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this very serious topic with me. <laughs> Twitter, we want to know, what was the worst trend of your youth? Let us know using the hashtag AM Up next, Rachel Zoe is here, and she'll be giving her take on the polarizing trends of today.
7: Welcome back. I'm Patrice Peck, beauty and culture writer for As Is. This is The Sit Down, and I'm here with Rachel Zoe designer, CEO, and fashion icon.
10: Oh, you're sweet. Hello. Nice to be here. This is so fun. We're so happy to have you. This is so fun. I want your hair. (laughs) I do.
7: All right. So let's dive right into it. Okay, let's do it. Many people have attempted to build um, fashion empires. Mm -hmm. And you're one of the very few people who have done so successfully. Mm. How did you go from fashion
10: stylist to fashion mogul? I don't know. You know, I, I. It's funny. First of all, it's very sweet to say that. Second of all, you know, I. I always like to tell people I really never obsessed over the plan. Mm-hmm. You know, and I know that's something that people really do more and more today is try and sort of, you know, architect the strategy. And I do believe in strategy. I, however, my strategy was my gut, and still is to this day, and that's what has worked for me. Um, I, I always need to do more, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so being a stylist was something that I loved and I will always love, and it's who I am at the core. It's at the root of my brand and every extension of my business. Um, but I needed to do more. I needed to do things that felt like they meant more, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. got sort of deeper into women's minds and communicating with my customer, my audience in different ways. And that's really how it all, you know, that's how the Zo Report was born. That's how I wrote, you know, Style A to Zo and Living in Style and mm. how I did the Rachel Zoe Project. Everything that I've done is all an extension of the same message, which is empowering women to live a life in style and of style, not just in style, but mm. You know, taking that extra few minutes to think about who you are, what do you want out of life, Mm. you know, what are you going to do with your life, what's your meaning, what's your purpose, and Mm. also really build confidence in women because I think that's something we don't have Mm. instinctually, you know, we don't, Mm. we're we're always putting everyone else before us traditionally, you know, and I think that's something I'm more than guilty of, but, you know, I think it's really just following Following what feels right, you know? and That's how it worked for me. That's not right for everybody. Some people are like, by 27 I want to do this, by 30 I want to do this, by 32 I have to do this, and that doesn't work for me. And I also feel like it really sets you up for failure, mm-hmm. personal failure, because mm-hmm. you're like, I didn't get here, I didn't get there, you know? So, yeah. and this is just kind of how it works for me. I think you can't, you can't over-goal yourself. Yeah, that makes sense. it definitely makes sense. So <laughs> instinct and impact. Instinct, impact really knowing the true meaning behind your brand, Mm. to be honest, and who you are as a person and what your intention is. And it can be simple and it can be big, Mm -hmm. but I think at the end of the day, you have to really know what value you're adding to people's lives in some way.
7: I love it. And so let's talk about your empire. So we've got the Zo Report. Mm-hmm. We've got the luxury subscription service Box of Style. Yep. We've got your fabulous fashion
10: line, which I'm wearing. Which oh, is <laughs> just so cute on you, I can't take it. <laughs>
7: and we've <laughs> got your upcoming store. So tell us about that and all your offerings. You
10: know, I, we launched uh, Shop Rachel Zo, our e-commerce, um, about two, almost three years ago. Mm-hmm. And that has been the best thing for me as a designer because I can see every single day what people are buying, what they're not, what they're reacting to, what they're not, what they love, what they need more of, and why they're coming to me Mm -hmm. as a designer. And um, I think now opening my first store and um there's a beautiful new shopping center i'm sure you've heard of the grove in la Mm -hmm. so the same people rick caruso is behind that is opening this incredible shopping village um, on the west side in la in the palisades and i'm so excited to be a part of it and really create this incredible shopping experience for the for for every woman i mean the staff will be um, trained stylists by me so that everyone who's coming in feels like they're getting styled. They're not mm. just saying, I want that dress or yeah. I want that shoe or whatever.
7: Mm, so they got the Rachel Zoe touch.
10: 100% yes, <laughs> yes, yes. And of course, I'll be there all the time.
7: Yes, okay. So many fashion brands are um, expanding their sizing to be more inclusive. Yes. So what would you say to the shopper who wants to wear, you know, something from your line but can't find their size?
10: Well, they will be able to soon. Yes. They will be able to soon. It's it's Probably the number one priority for me right now is Definitely. really expanding on um, you know, sizing and everything else so that, I mean, the dream for me is every woman of any size mm-hmm. can wear my clothes. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm trying to make that real as soon as humanly possible.
7: Yes. <laughs>
10: okay, so stay tuned. <laughs> yeah, stay tuned. Stay tuned. I would say this year.
7: Oh, nice. Yes. All right. So. Roger Verman. Yes. (laughs) You know we had to go there. Oh, God. (laughs) He is the co-CEO of your company, and he's also your husband, who you've been with since college. Yeah,
10: he's the co-CEO of of my personal life, too.
7: Yes. (laughs) I love that. So between me and you, and of course, everybody watching. Sure. Just between (laughs) me and you. Yes. Um, What is it like working with your spouse?
10: You know, we are going on 28 years Mm. this month. It'll be 28 years together. And of those 28 years, I'm gonna say, we've spent a total of like 30 to 60 days apart. You know, almost never. We're almost never apart. But that works for us. It does not work for everybody. We partner in everything. You know, I always say hashtag partner in life because he really is. We can't, it's weird. We have this codependent, independent thing. We really respect each other's privacy and lives separately but we can't really not be together we think together we make every decision together you know and that's how you know he comes from an investment banking background Mm -hmm. and I sort of made him join because he was so involved because it just started to get too big for Mm -hmm. just me and I obviously wanted to focus on the things I love the most and what he loves the most is totally different than what I love the most you know he loves finance and business and spreadsheets and models and I like that, but I love being creative, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it really allows for me to do what I love most and focus on that. We are a little like a comedy sketch sometimes, you know? (laughs) Um, A little, you're too young, but if you ever watched I Love Lucy, Mm -hmm. you know, we're a little Lucy and Ricky. Yeah. Um, We bicker, but we have the quickest recovery rate, apparently, Yes. Um, you know? So in the same breath when I'm like screaming at him about something, um, you know, he's saying something I want to do is too expensive in the business. We can't do that, blah, blah, and I'm like, eh, you know, and we get in a whole thing, and it lasts about five minutes, and then ten minutes later, it's like, okay, you know, what are we doing tonight? Right. What are we eating for dinner? You know, let's. Are you picking up the kids or my? You know, that. So, so it's just kind of being able to move on. You know. Got it. Yes,
7: definitely. Okay, so we got to talk style. Okay. Which celeb? Oh, I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> Which celeb would you love to give a style makeover to?
10: You know, I don't know if you're going to like my answer to that, but my immediate thought is Meghan Markle, because I mm. love her. Mm-hmm. And to me, I mean, royalty is definitely celebrity. Mm-hmm. I think it's the dream, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there's royalty, there's princess, yes, duchess, um, it's the fairy tale, but she seems just so amazing and mm-hmm. so real and cool. and. Mm-hmm. You know, Kate Middleton seam I would love I would love to, to dress them I think that would be like as a designer mm-hmm. to see them in my clothes would be next level
7: I agree So before you go yes. we're gonna play something we call Zo or no Oh God we're gonna show you some fashion no. <laughs> We're gonna show you some trends and if you like the trend, Use the zoe side of your paddle. Okay. And if you're not feeling the trend, show us the
10: no side. Oh my god, this is really funny. All right, you ready? Okay. All right, let's go. Pretending that's not my face.
7: (laughs) Chunky sneakers.
10: For me, no. Yeah, okay. Tool. Tool? Oh, tool. Tool. (laughs) Oh my god, yes. Yes. Okay, teeny. I was thinking of a <laughs> screwdriver. I'm
7: like, tool. Oh right. I'm like, did I say it right? No. Cool. Yes. Teeny tiny glasses.
10: Yes. Ooh, I love okay. John Lennon's my hero. Oh,
7: I see it. Okay. Cross body bags, you know, the fanny packs. <sighs> it's a that's
10: in between. It depends on how you're doing it. Okay. Okay. For me, no. Okay. For me personally, no. <laughs> no,
7: no. Biker shorts.
10: Wait, no. <laughs> Do you love that this is challenging?
7: I love it. <laughs> okay,
10: it's clearly, yes.
7: So I feel like I know the answer to this one. Fringe. Oh, duh. Yes. Duh. All day, every day, all day, every day. Yes, okay. PVC apparel.
10: As in faux?
7: Right, or plastic, like
10: plastic boots, plastic oh. top. Not for That's me. That's a no, Not okay. For me. Not for me. Okay. Doesn't mean it's not for everyone. It's just not, not for, for me. You. Not for me.
7: Got it. Sequence. Duh. Duh.
10: Like at 7 a.m. all day every day. Ah, uh, yes. To Whole Foods and Otherwise.
7: Thank you so much. Thank
10: you. This, this was, was awesome. so fun. Yes. Thank you. You look so cute.
7: Thank you. I'm never taking this off. Okay. <laughs> Up next, more AM to DM.
10: This is so good. <laughs>
0: Welcome back. Uh we asked, what was the worst trend of your youth? Mm. And uh AM to DM co-host Saeed Jones said heterosexuality. Mm. Mm. To which mm. my boss Benjamin Smith, mm. editor-in-chief
1: of buzzfeed News, replied, This is how we got Trump. Ooh! Weehoo!
0: <laughs> I didn't get nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, Benjamin. You know we got fiery back and forth <laughs> here on AMG. We have a rapport. Yeah, there's a lot of rapport. Uh, great interview by David Max. Listen, down with what Banks. did David do? That he did. That do was that. an interview, children. He did do that. That's how you ask questions. It was absolutely fantastic. We also asked you what you'd buy with a clothing budget of half a million dollars. Surya Sakar says jeans whose thigh area doesn't disintegrate after just two days. Whew, an That's investment purchase. Yes. Yeah, yes, some important. of this. You can't really see it, but I'm pushing it. <laughs> he was doing the little buzz. real quick. <laughs> All right. <laughs>
8: What, uh, what is the going. appropriate response to watching you I'll rub your thighs going. together? I'll okay,
1: A queer mermaid has a whole look in mind. You tweeted, I would immediately start dressing like an Italian dandy. Okay, mm. a vision. Driving shoes. Oh, I love driving shoes. All in and everything. Angle length pants. Wild scars. I love driving shoes. They're perfect for summer into fall mm. before, you know, the sidewalks and all the snow
0: and all that. Oh, I, I love a neckerchief. That's what I'm picturing, one of those things, you know? Just driving through the hills of Italy. God. Mm, It'd be good. Uh, This was what Alice Berry would buy. Chances parkas that turn into sleeping bags for homeless and low-income folks who need one. That's what I'm talking about. All All right. All right, Alice. Yes, 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 yes. Way to be a good person. I'd get a
1: personal stylist. Ooh! I realized that's definitely what I would use part of that money for, a personal stylist.
0: I keep trying to trick Said into being my personal stylist, but he keeps passing. I'm about to
1: expose Isaac. When we were in Miami, Isaac was asking me for clothing advice, mm. and I refused to give it to him. Mm. And he said, what's the point of having a gay best friend?
0: I'm just saying! We were you having, see what I put up with? We were having fun in Miami, though.
1: It was a good time.
0: All right. He, did, oh, he did tell me about Yeah, that's right. Thank all you, Jay. Alright. All right. I do love you, boo. I love you, Trash. Too.
1: Anyway, thank you to all he of us guests. Trash. What a morning. <laughs> <laughs> I will deal with you later. Manhattan District Attorney Cy Vance, uh, Rachel Zoe, Rebecca Sun, Emma Loop, Molly Kinsley Clancy, David Mack, Stephanie McNeil, Essence Gantt, uh, Stella Bugs. I see you looking at me. Stella Bugby and Patrice Peck.
0: Don't let thin eyebrows come back, don't do but it. we will be back don't Friday, tomorrow, 10 a.m. You're getting there, folks. You're getting there. Have a good Thursday. Treat your eyebrows right. Mm. Don't, don't. <laughs>